the abundance of this church and for our opportunity to serve its mission, we give thanks. I am not especially a morning person. <laughs> Early in the morning when my coffee isn't ready yet, and or in the middle of winter, when a weekday commute starts before the sun is up, I can get pretty gloomy. Poems and lyrics that match my mood come to mind. And sometimes that's 90s alternative rock, or dystopian musical theater, like Sweeney Todd or Little Shop of Horrors. But sometimes verses like this one come up on the internal playlist. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Or else this one. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, on most days, the wearisome mood doesn't last. Usually, once I get some momentum going and I'm reminded of the talented and committed people that I get to work and live with, I can be more positive. I can embrace my whole day, frustrations and hopes taken together. In those moments, verses like this one spring up. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now the funny thing is, both of those, all of those passages come from the same book. Um, just now, those were the New Revised Standard Version translations. Those words are from Ecclesiastes, known also as Kohelet in Jewish circles. It's a book of sayings that's um, cast as a book of advice from an older person to a younger person. According to tradition, the speaker is Solomon in his later years. And Ecclesiastes is not so much a book about God as practical advice for living a meaningful life. The speaker takes apart some of the usual suspects for, for things that are supposed to make people happy. Wealth, power, pleasure, even perfection in religious practice. Now all of these can be attempts to carve out immortality in our mortal existence. And not one of them actually works in isolation. Rabbi Rami Shapiro points out that the Hebrew word at the beginning of the book that is usually translated as vanity can also be translated as emptiness. Taken this way, Kohelet sounds less cranky and more serene, more like a book of wisdom like the Tao Te Ching or a book of Buddhist sayings or something like that. His translation begins, emptiness, emptiness upon emptiness. The world is fleeting of form empty of permanence, void of surety, without certainty. Like a breath breathed and gone, all things rise and fall. Understand emptiness, and tranquility replaces anxiety. Understand emptiness, and compassion replaces jealousy. Understand emptiness, and you will cease to excuse suffering and begin to alleviate it. 
Now we're talking, right? Does that sound kind of familiar, kind of you-you? I think this text gets to the heart of why most of us come to a UU congregation. We are seekers, but not the kind of seekers who are looking for a spiritual high without responsibility. We have some sense that we'd like to make the world a better place, and we certainly can't accomplish great things alone. A lot of us have some skepticism about promises made in the guise of religion. We aren't going to find either inner peace or immortality by amassing wealth at the expense of love, or by controlling the people around us, or by achieving perfection. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Rabbi Harold Kushner says that these questions are timeless and timely. He writes, our souls are hungry for meaning. Ecclesiastes suggests that if we don't try to force a unique and personal mark on history, if we forget about cementing some permanence in an ephemeral world, if we let go of the vain illusion of separateness and instead relax into the truth of our interdependence, we may yet live a life of meaning as we move through a universe that appears meaningless. Personally, I need this wisdom not only to seek meaning, but so that I can be more compassionate towards myself and others. Pursuing false pretenses of permanence like fame or eternal youth are not good for me. That journey feels like a hamster wheel, one where I constantly berate myself for not grabbing the lettuce that's just out of reach. One might think that I would cut my fellow travelers some slack for being moody or jealous or impatient due to their hamster wheel exhaustion, but I'm not always as mindful or forgiving as I would like to be. Ecclesiastes reminds me of what I know from the no-outlet streets of my spiritual history. Cul-de-sacs and dead ends are safe places to stop and check the map and turn around. At that point, I can check on my behavior and find some compassion for others who are stressed on their own journeys. With reflection and encouragement and appreciation for all the beings I'm connected with, I have brief insights of not worrying about where this strange trip is going. And I can instead give thanks for the sacredness of this stretch of the road. For this gathering of seekers, let's explore together the practice of making U-turns at dead ends, the practice of compassion for those on the journey, and the practice of savoring the current step. Many times in my life, I found myself out of breath from racing toward the wrong finish line. In most cases, this is just metaphorically true. Whether I failed at something and the world didn't end, or I succeeded at something only to find my victory didn't solve all of my problems, I've had the experience of refining my path through the process of elimination. Being wrong can be very informative. There have also been times when the race was more literal. I was on a summer swim team starting from about fifth grade through 11th grade. My team was based at a community pool, not a prestigious training facility or an exclusive private club. So it was an interesting mix of talented athletes and regular kids like me. My coach encouraged each of us to work on our own skills rather than comparing ourselves to each other. 
I know participation trophies are frowned on in some circles, but she believed in them. The success of the team came one point at a time, and motivating kids to do a little better than they had the week before was how we earned those points. Praising only the kids who came in first would not have helped our team. In reviewing the results of each meet, which she tried to do in private conversations, she commented on the percentage improvement over time and how we could do better with that stroke. I participated happily, earned a few points in backstroke, but my real niche was team spirit. I tried to cheer loud enough so that the, my teammates could hear me with their ears under the water. I brought bubbles so that the team spirit could float across the pool and hang in the air. Not everybody appreciated it. <laughs> But I had a good time. When I got to high school and went out for the school team, the vibe was totally different. It was very competitive. The team didn't really get into the group cheers. The coach for the high school team had been a nationally ranked swimmer. He wasn't mean, but he also made it clear that he was more interested in winning meets than in being an exercise program. There was a lot of attention from the high school on the swim team, and it made me nervous. At one point, it doesn't matter how fast you're going if it's not your match. I realized at some point the school team was not my crowd, and I didn't go back for my sophomore year. In the grand scheme of things that we can exhaust ourselves trying to do, this is a small example. There's nothing wrong with wanting to win swim meets, but it wasn't the right goal for me. I believe the way we go about pursuing our goals and how we prioritize them in relationship to things like love and compassion are just as important as working towards success. Ecclesiastes or Kohelet names some specific ways people try to achieve immortality or happiness that don't necessarily work. Shapiro's translation framed it this way. When you are deluded by the illusion of permanence, you become trapped in the pursuit of profit. Profit for the body, wealth. Profit for the mind, knowledge. Profit for the soul, eternal life, vanity, and foolishness. Profit requires permanence, and there is no permanence. Therefore, there is no profit, and the pursuit of profit yields only suffering. So ends the quote. The speaker goes systematically through all the dead ends that he has tried in life. And here's where you kind of can imagine King Solomon. He tried amassing great riches. He tried achieving political power. He tried being renowned for knowledge and wisdom. He tried denying the body through ascetic religious practice and concludes that none of those paths brought the satisfaction or immortality that they seemed to promise. As an aside, I'd like to differentiate here between meeting basic needs and getting caught up in the wrong contest. Secure food and housing are not barriers to happiness. Nobody is suggesting a life of deprivation. The text is very clear, and I want to be very clear, that it's good to enjoy our families and our work, to take pleasure in the food and drink in front of us, and to rest when we are weary. At the same time, trying to collect stuff or awards or opinions we don't need can block happiness. I think it's very easy to get sucked into trying to win a prize that doesn't exist. 
whether that's being known as the cleverest among friends or achieving 100% mastery of that work-life balance or gaining recognition as the most perfect parent ever. I'd like to be able to let go of the labels and focus on living out my mission on this earth as I understand it, even if nobody notices or remembers. At least that's the person I'd like to be. Facebook makes it kind of difficult. <laughs> I'm trying. Living a meaningful life is apparently something that has to be practiced constantly rather than achieved once and for all through insight. Perhaps not everybody here has had the experience of meeting a dead end. Perhaps some of you have been better navigators on the spiritual path, choosing trails that you can enjoy as you journey, regardless of whether the end point passes through wealth or fame or perfection. I'm guessing, though, that most of us have learned something about ourselves from trying a road that didn't lead where we thought it would. That's okay. We can always step to the side, check the map against our deepest connections and priorities, and make a U-turn. We make mistakes sometimes about the speed or direction or velocity that's right for us in living a meaningful life. And that's part of the learning process. It seems to me, though, that we are not our best selves when all our energy is going toward winning the wrong contest. Again, from the text, if you are trapped by the quest for permanence, each day boils with anger, frustration, and needless suffering. Night grants no rest, and your mind seethes with rage over the theft of security. Well, I don't know that my symptoms are that severe all of the time. I definitely do feel grumpier and more rushed and less satisfied before I realize that I'm accidentally chasing a goal like recognition or superiority rather than listening to my values. This morning's Time for All Ages story described a carriage driver who was so hell-bent on getting somewhere that the safety and dignity of the teacher and student walking along the road became insignificant. The fancy rig with the six horses forced two people into a ditch. This morning's telling described mud off to the side of the road, but I'm guessing if there's horses around, there's something less savory in the ditch. The student focused on indignation and had choice words about the character of the driver. And the teacher recognized the pain that undergirds thoughtlessness. We can guess that the carriage belonged to someone with money, but we don't know if they were fleeing for their lives, or trying to save someone, or beholden to a boss who inspired fear if they turned up late. Harmful behavior can come from maladaptive ways to meet real human needs. The carriage story reminds me that not all of my interactions are about me. Aggressive drivers don't always make their choices out of personal spite. Co-workers who fail to greet me might have something else on their minds. Even feedback that is on the surface about me is also about the person who gives it. Their words tell me what they value, what's on their minds, and what they believe, in the, that, and that they believe in the possibility of change. Making room for sympathy when I feel hurt is not easy, and I can't manage it all of the time, but it's worth a try. Having compassion for people on the journey makes it much easier to bring up negative behavior directly, kindly, and effectively. 
UU ministers tend to put this in the category of speaking the truth in love. My counseling colleagues call it carefrontation. If we wish the best for someone who has caused an injury, pointing it out to them is necessary for everyone's healing. I'm not saying that we should allow the carriage driver to continue in the same manner indefinitely. It's okay to be angry and sympathetic at the same time, although that's not always possible. When we are able to have compassion for the carriage driver, that helps our chances for reconciliation when we address their behavior rather than dragging ourselves down with name-calling and dehumanization. If reconciliation doesn't catch on, we can send the carriage driver our love and blessings from far away. We do not owe it to anyone to allow ourselves to be harmed repeatedly. The need for love and understanding is equally true when applied to ourselves. I find it difficult to forgive myself when I've been so focused on saving time or winning points that I forget to be considerate. Now, if I can stop focusing on my regret, I can learn something. There was an incident in seminary when I was a student body officer in charge of getting ready for an event. Other students stepped forward to take leadership roles, and I checked in with them constantly, giving them little reminders. Well, finally, one of my friends kind of invited me on a walk and told me I was micromanaging. And she said she felt disrespected, and I felt awful. But my gratitude for my friend's courage in speaking up and her faith in my ability to do better helped me to get over it and try again. Compassion for other people on the journey comes easier when we're not in a rush to achieve imaginary prizes and when we have what we truly need. May all of our deepest, healthiest desires be satisfied, and may we show kindness for all of the travelers on the road, including ourselves. So far, we've talked about practicing U-turns and practicing compassion as we go our ways. There's also the aspect not of going, but of being. We seek meaning in the everyday, the spirituality of sunsets, the casual gestures of kindness, of appreciation of the here and now. Cherry blossom time in D.C. is coming up soon. I grew up close to the city, and I've seen cherry blossoms before. I'd like to go back someday. We haven't been able to make the trip during that narrow window since before my preschool twins were born and now. When they were toddlers, I looked at maps and traffic patterns. I investigated parking and transportation options. I tried to come up with a scheme that would work, given that my children do not nap in the car. Well, it just wasn't worth it. Even though holding off until they're older is the right choice, I was bummed. <laughs> I was so bummed, I almost missed the fleeting signs of spring in my own neighborhood. There's a tree in our front yard and a matching one across the street in our neighbor's yard. It has these huge pink blossoms that only come out in the early spring. They drop down like a carpet of petals in the front yard making way for green leaves and its wide branches. I am glad for this tree because of the shade it offers in the summer and the refreshing surprise of its springtime color. If I cared too much about the look of my lawn, I might be less glad for the petals it drops. But as it happens, my kids are fond of the color pink. My son likes pink. My daughter is the number one fan of the color, color pink on our block. 
Last year, my partner started a practice of opening their bedroom window shades every morning and by inviting the children to look out the window at the tree. First, the little covers on, from the buds fell to the ground. And then the next morning, there were little points of color at the very top of the tree. By the afternoon, the blossoms were open, a riot of pink in our otherwise sedate neighborhood. With, with the wind and the rain, the petals fell steadily, and I knew we would have to drink in the vision while we had it. And this is pretty similar to what I would have gotten out of the cherry blossoms, except I got to do it in my pajamas. Thanks to my partner's introduction of the simple spiritual practice of opening the blinds, I was able to appreciate what I had rather than grieving the experience I didn't have. This is the wisdom offered by Ecclesiastes. When we are able to respond to the brevity of satisfying events by enjoying them rather than trying to nail them down, we are open to transcendence. It is part of our job to care for and appreciate the world for as long as we can. I'll offer a few final verses from the text. Whatever is given you to do, do it with full attention. Withhold neither body nor mind, but allow life to consume you. Live like a log, a flame intended. Give warmth, light, comfort, and fuel, and in the end, leave only ash. For not, there is neither deed nor planning, neither knowledge nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. Seek not to buy your way out of the grave. Seek only to spend yourself wisely in life. As Unitarian Universalists, we look to sacred texts to inspire us and to ignite our curiosity, but not usually to direct our lives. Exploring together what inspiration Ecclesiastes might have for us, it seems to me, to be an ancient advice column with timely relevance. May we all have the insight and strength to make U-turns when we need them. May we practice compassion and direct communication among spiritual travelers. May we savor this very moment on the journey. So be it. Blessed be. Amen.